Well, last week we began a series uh, that is a topical series entitled More, Recalibrating Our Hearts to the Glory of God. Now, I think most of us, when we think about more, uh, we think to ourselves, uh, I want more of all sorts of things. In fact, there's no limit to the number, the litany of things that I would love to have more of. Problem is, is that we live actually in a culture that is full of all sorts of isms that actually shape us in ways that might be imperceivable to us. Uh, in other words, there are all kinds of cultural influences that you are hit by day in and day out that are actually shaping your soul. So for instance, materialism, uh, that, that ism that says that basically all that matters in this world is matter. Uh, that all that you should care about is comfort and the things that are physical of this world. Um, that shapes us. It tells us that the spiritual world does not matter. Or what about consumerism? Uh, that ever so popular teaching that says that really what this life is about is just getting more stuff. And so between those two, as they start to bombard our hearts and our souls, what we start to feel and believe and think is that all that really matters in this world is stuff and getting more stuff, and we don't really look to the spiritual world. But as we look to the Bible, what the Bible says is, is that actually there is a spiritual world that is far more important uh, and influences and shapes this material world. But left to ourselves... And those influences, uh, we are really much like that original material boy, Judas, that we talked about last week, who sold Jesus for pocket change. Uh, We can relate to Adam, who gave away his relationship with God for a piece of fruit. So maybe you're asking, when you think about guys like Judas and Adam, Adam, you think to yourself, because we tend to be a little bit cocky, uh, how in the world did Judas and Adam make such bum deals with God? I mean, what a loss, right? Giving up so much for so little. But I think that there was something in them that caused them to do that. And it's the same kind of thing that's in you and me. They wanted more. That's why they did it. And we are all by nature appetitive creatures fashioned by God with eternity in our hearts. We have an insatiable appetite for more. And catch this. I'm arguing this morning that that desire that you have in your heart for more is actually basic to what it means to be human. Something that God made you with. And so even in Christ, as we take on His easy yoke, we have all sorts of longings that will not and should not be satisfied in this life till Jesus gets back. So our first spiritual gasp for air At the new birth, when we are brought from spiritual death to life, uh, we immediately experience spiritual hunger for the food and the housing that only God can provide. That come locked and loaded with that. If you're a spiritual being, you have desires for more given to you by God. Now, I'm not the only one that's noticed this. Uh, You probably have heard the famous quote by C.S. Lewis in that book, Weight of Glory, where he writes, if we consider... The unblushing promises of reward. And the nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, as he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are 
far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. Let me ask you this morning. Do you think that you might struggle with being far too easily pleased? And all of the desires that you have, and all the wants that God has made you with, do you think that just maybe this morning you are actually far too easily pleased? That God has actually made you for something much more than what all of your appetites are leading you towards? Well, here's the good news. You don't have to be. See, the Bible is chock full of texts that beg you to want more out of both this life and the life that is to come. And so we're going to look at Paul's prayer this morning in Ephesians. In Ephesians three fourteen to 20 that Sam just read for us. And, and let me just warn you. This isn't the kind of text that you can read this morning and kind of shrug your shoulders and walk away from saying, I think I'll just keep settling for less. You know, kind of like that direct TV commercial about the, the family that they always have less than the neighbors and the kids ask the parents why. And they just always have the same answer. They said, well, it's because we're settlers. We, we settle for things. That's what we do, right? Well, maybe that's kind of what we do. We laugh at them, but we do that same thing day in and day out. We're settling for less than what God would have for us. And here's the deal. One of the top reasons I believe that we settle for less in this life is that we underestimate God. We underestimate Him. His power, His wisdom, and His goodness. So put your seatbelts on. Because Paul doesn't pray small prayers to a small God. And we're going to look at, see what God has to say to us this morning. We're going to see that we should pray and live out of the confidence that God can actually do more than we can imagine. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. But we're going to begin uh, this morning uh, with my first point, which is don't settle. And um, I'm going to kind of Jesus juke you a little bit because we're going to be in Acts before we go to Ephesians. All right? Uh, this is a topical message, so I feel like I can do that. So uh, you can look up Acts 19, 18 to 19. That's the verses I'm going to be, res- I'm going to be uh, pointing to in a minute. But I want to just catch you up to speed as far as how Paul has a relationship with this church in Ephesus that he's writing you to. And I think that's going to help us appreciate Paul's message all the more. Now, you'll remember that Paul went and preached for two and a half years at the city of Ephesus, which, if you don't know geography and history, Ephesus was one of the top three Greco-Roman cities at the time. And so uh, think about Rome, big deal, Athens, and then Ephesus. Ephesus had somewhere around 200 to 250,000 people. It was a big, powerful port city. And and what we know about Ephesus is uh, they were a city that had many gods, and they held a Artemis as being their goddess. They believed uh, that Artemis was married to Ephesus, the city, and and that she actually protected them. Uh, They were also really big into magic. Now, when you think about magic, don't think shell-like games, like we're saying that you can't do that. The Bible doesn't say that. Shell games are fine. We're talking about black magic. These were dark magic practices with magic books and that sort of thing. And what's fascinating here is that when Paul goes in and preaches in Ephesus, uh, we're told in Acts chapter 19 that people were becoming converted. They were becoming converted in such masses that it was completely running the idol-making business into the ground. Now hang with me. The whole city was scared, particularly the businessmen, because they were being put out of business because Christianity was catching like wildfire. And they said, this has got to stop. The idol business is going down the tubes. 
In fact, it got so bad, people were so enraptured in their faith and confidence in Jesus as Lord that we're told that they went out in Acts 19 and burned their magic books. And you're thinking, well, what's the big deal with that? I mean, how much could a, a magic book cost? Well, it tells us 50,000 pieces of silver worth of magic books. Now you're thinking, okay, how does that matter? Well, uh, if you think about it this way, Judas sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And these books of magic were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Uh, that would have been 50,000 days worth of wages. This was an extraordinary sum of money that these people said faith in Christ was altogether worth it. Do you think those people might have wanted more than what they had in this world? I think so. And that is the, the people, those are the people that made up this church that Paul's speaking to in Ephesians. Now, as we look at Ephesians, as we jump in, what you're going to see is in the book as a whole, it's really broken up into two really nice parts. Uh, the first part is about this extraordinary theology of the salvation that God has brought about in our lives. And the second part points us to how that theology ought to play out in how we live. And so that's exactly what we come to at the end of Ephesians 3 we're going to be today. What you're going to see is, is that we are coming to the end of this section where Paul tells this church, okay, I'm landing the plane on the theology of the glorious nature of your salvation and what God has done for you. And so get ready, because then I'm going to tell you how to live. But before you live, you've got to know who God is, right? And so that's where we are here, as he's landing the plane into this glorious declaration of the nature of God in this prayer. And so that brings us to our text this morning in Ephesians chapter, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, where we're going to see exactly what it is uh, that God has done. So go ahead and look there again with me in Ephesians chapter 3. And, and what we're going to see here in verses 14 to 15 is that we are to pray to God the Father who has no equal. When we pray, we pray to God the Father who has no equal. So look with me again in Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. Here's what it says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Okay, just stop right there. That's enough to chew on for a minute. See, Paul here, as he is landing the plane of this glorious theology of the salvation of God for his people, opens up this prayer. And I don't know about you, but as he opens up this prayer, what, what is fascinating to me is Paul's description of God as the Father from whom every family in earth and on earth is named. It just took me a little time to work through that. You don't see that kind of description of God very often. And so, if you look through it, you'll notice that some have taken this family to speak of Christians, both alive and dead in heaven, right? Uh, others have taken this to actually speak of some kind of uh, way that God is equally the Father of all that are living in the same way. But I think it's more likely that this speaks of a general way in which God is a Father who is an authority over all beings, whether heavenly or earthly, whether angelic or human. Uh, God is the great God who has all authority over all of creation and all beings. Now you'll remember that it was just back in Ephesians 3.10, where Paul says in his statement, one of my favorite verses in all the Bibles, it was 
He worked this work through the gospel in verse 10 so that through the church, speaking of a local church, the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you catch that? Rulers and authorities in heavenly places. They look down. We might think we're a pretty you know, normal-looking, average-looking group. Angels and demons look on us and think something nuts is breaking out because God is reconciling us through the power of His cross. Not just to God the Father, but to one another. And, and that's something that angelic beings are doing. You catch that? We know this because in Ephesians 6.12, He later calls those rulers and authorities in heaven demons warning us do not wrestle against flesh. They do, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you see that? And so when he says he's the father of everyone in heaven and on earth, he's saying whether you're an angel or a human, God has all authority. He is an otherworldly kind of ruler. So catch this. Paul begins his prayer. And this, take note, is a good way to begin your prayer. He begins his prayer praying, acknowledging that God is the cosmic king who has authority over every being in heaven and on earth. He's not the father of everyone in the same way, but his authority is universal. You, You pray like that? Is that where you start your prayers? See, that's that's really what his naming of every family means. Naming, when he names all these families, it speaks to his ownership over them. Now, different cultures have different ways of of showing ownership. In my house, I have uh, three sons, and and we show ownership uh, when we wrestle and we fight. We love to wrestle and fight. That's what boys do. Uh, Just a warning, if all you have is girls, this is going to sound strange to you. But I came home one day, and uh, I heard a screaming and a laughing from my oldest son. And so I ran in, I couldn't tell which it was. And I see my middle son, Johnny, sitting on Benjamin's face. He's laughing, almost passing out. He's laughing so hard. And Benjamin is laughing and screaming. And he doesn't know which he's supposed to be doing. So he's just doing both, sort of back and forth, right? And I'm like, what in the world are you doing? And I hear Johnny screaming out of the top of his lungs. I own you. I own you. (laughs) So for my middle son, like what it means to own somebody is to sit on their face. Like once then, like we know who rules, right? Well, if you look at the Bible, the Bible has a different kind of ownership and a different kind of way to speak to it. It's, it's naming. So you'll remember in Genesis 2, whenever Adam is created, uh, Adam then later goes and God brings like a parade of animals before him, right? And each animal he gives a name to. Now the reason is, is God is declaring to and through Adam that he is his small little king, under him the great king, he is reflecting the authority of God as he names each of those creatures, saying, and you shall rule and have dominion over the earth. You will reflect my glory in the way that you rule and reign. And so when he names those animals, it's showing a kind of authority in the same way that God names every family on the earth, claiming authority over us. And parents still name their children as a symbol of their authority and responsibility for their children. Fortunately for Benjamin, Carrie wouldn't let me name him Xerxes. But nonetheless, we name our kids, right? And it shows a certain kind of authority. So many, so many Ephesians may, in this context, hang with me, in Ephesus, many outside the church non-Christians considered Artemis as the goddess and protector of Ephesus, right? 
She's protecting them in Ephesus. She is the one who protects that city. But Paul here prays to his God as the cosmic king who reigns universally. Do you see that? Artemis, you might have authority in Ephesus, but let me just tell you, if you think you have authority in Ephesus, it is a much smaller authority than mine. I'm the king of the universe. You see that? And that's the God that Paul prays to. Now, it's important to note three things here. First, nothing has been made that was not made by God, whether it is seen or unseen forces. And second, God is not the father of all in the same way. Uh, That's clear. But here's the important point that Paul makes. Paul's God possesses unparalleled power and authority. That's the God we, as God's children, pray to. God is the cosmic king. And third, God names every living family because he's actively engaged in his creation. He doesn't create you and then sort of walk away and just sort of watch and say, I wonder what will happen. I hope it works out. No, he he watches because he cares and he's involved and he's engaged. That's the kind of God that we have. Now catch this. This is important. I want to do a little reflection here. We, I believe, can learn so much about our view of God and the world through how we pray. See, our, our prayers tell us much about how we view and think about God. And I, I believe they'll really be a tell to what our lives look out being lived out for God. So the smaller that God is in your eyes, I, I believe the smaller your prayers will be. In other words, if you think that your God is only capable of little things, it is probably because we believe that God is small, that his ability, his power, his wisdom, his goodness are limited in some way that is alien to the Bible. And the weaker that God seems to be in your eyes, the less frequent your prayers will be. You you will not see and believe that you actually can take God at his word that we have not because we ask not. So catch this. Paul Great example of the way to begin your prayers. We can learn so much from him. Paul launches into his prayers declaring the cosmic authority of his transcendent God. Do you see that? That's not the climax. That's the beginning point. We start with the big God when we go to him in prayer. We don't work up to sort of talking about what God might be able to do. We begin with the greatness of who he is. Of who he's displayed himself to be. Of who we know him to be. And that's his starting point. So please hear me. A theology. A a study and an understanding and a confidence in who God is. The more robust that theology is, the more robust your trust will be. See, a, a theology that's robust leads to trust. That's what the scriptures say everywhere. When God is big, our, our prayers will not be small. So you don't start prayers like Paul and ask for less. So let me just ask you this morning, what does your prayer life say about how you believe and what you believe about God? Does your prayer life begin with a small God and end with small requests because your expectations of God are so small? You know, the best way to help your prayer life if you feel this morning like it's too small. And let me just say, when I look at Paul's prayer, I feel like I need to work on my prayer life. And if it's too small, then the best way to help your prayer life is to fill your mind with the Bible so that God is enlarged in your eyes. 
See, read scriptures before you pray. If you're looking like, how do I pray better? Start by hearing God's word. Read God's word. See what God's word says about God. Look at the robust picture that God himself gives of himself. And then as you begin to pray, let that direct the beginning of your prayer, praising God for his character that is on display in those texts. See, this is what we do with our pastoral prayers. You'll notice that this morning, uh, whenever Dan got up, he began by praising God as a God who is able to help us. Uh, This is the way that we pray in our pastoral prayers. We begin every service that we begin with a time of praising God for his attributes. Why do we do that? It's because we we want to begin with what God has said about himself and what we know to be true about him and then work down to man. We start with God. And we only know how to speak to God after God has first spoken to us, right? Like He tells us this is who I am and how you should think about me and how you should speak to me and what you should ask for and what you should expect. And then once we've heard from God, we speak Scripture back to the God who has spoken to us in the Scriptures. So the best prayers erupt. Friends, hear me. They erupt out of a heart whose seams are bursting with the Bible. If you want a good prayer life, immerse yourself in God's Word. Listen to Him. And you'll beg to talk back. The best prayers come from that. So, here's my question. What does Paul ask God for? What does he ask God for? Well, third, he prays that these Christians might comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. He he prays, he says, I want you, I've got a big God who can do this. I want you as a finite creature to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Jesus. And we see that in verses 16 to 19. Look there again with me. Hear what he says. He says, beginning in 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he being God may grant you to be strengthened with the power of through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Man, anybody here want to be filled with all the fullness of God? I I do. I've got a couple here with me. That's great. See, Paul's going to pray for something incredible for the Ephesians. But, before we get there, just take note of one important detail. He makes his request to the cosmic king according to the riches of his glory. Of course, that glory speaks to the essence of what it means to be God. So that everything that it is to be God is in His glory. And He's saying, I am asking according to you and all that you are. And God, He is not needy. He is not greedy. The Scriptures tell us that He is all-sufficient, generous, and the source of every good. And He says, I know there's no limit to the resources that you have, my God, my cosmic King. And here's the incredible prayer that He asks for the Ephesians. That they may be strengthened... To comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. Now, you know that physical strength requires working out. So I've heard. You, you need to hit the gym and eat lots of protein. Am I on the right track? 
Like, that's how you build muscle, right? That's what we've been told. But Paul says the spiritual strengthening of the inner being actually requires God's work in us. It it takes more than what we can do. It is um, a work that God does in the core of who we are. Or as commentator Harold Hainer says, it is through God's Spirit that the believer is to be strengthened with God's ability to act. It is God's Spirit at work within us. Now, the purpose of this work at the core of who we are is given in verse 17. This is why he does this work. He he says, it is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is an interesting word for dwell. There are different words for dwell in the New Testament. I hope that doesn't make you nervous. But there are different words behind those words. And and so, uh, this word is different than, say, the kind of tent dwelling word that you would see in John 1.14. Where he says that Jesus came and he tabernacled or tent or tented or camped among us you know that's temporary housing now this word actually is a different word that speaks to more of a permanence more of a permanent kind of dwelling where he might be at home that is at the very center of or deeply rooted in the believer's lives so it's it's this idea of like hey he's not just hanging out here he's not just renting Um, we have Jesus in our heart in such a way that he's starting to hang pictures, right? Like he's going to be here for a while. That's the image that we get. More and more, Jesus is setting up shop in the very core recesses of our soul. And Jesus needs to live in every one of those rooms of our heart. Do you see it? The, The Holy Spirit strengthens the inner man and woman, resulting in the deep indwelling of Christ in one's heart by Faith. So the Holy Spirit, catch this. The Holy Spirit doesn't just drive us to Jesus. Does that. He drives Jesus into us. You, you catch that? He, he wants Jesus deep in our souls. He wants Him having deep influence over the way that we think and what we do and the decisions that we make and the attitudes that we have. So what does Jesus look like? This Jesus that is taking up shop in our hearts well Paul says here in Ephesians and elsewhere it is love God has rooted and grounded the believers in love take note which really that love that they've been rooted and grounded in points back to something he's already told them in Ephesians 1 here's how the love of God has been especially put on display in your life he it says in Ephesians 1 chose them he predestined them he adopted them Blessed them in Christ, redeemed them, made them a heritage, sealed them with the Holy Spirit, made them alive, raised them and seated them in the heavenlies and placed them equally in the one new person in the body of Christ. You see that love? It is a thick and full and saturated kind of love that has already been shown to them and put on them that they already possess before God. They are loved. And so we love God and others because He first loved us. And what does it mean to be filled with all the fullness of God except that we might comprehend that boundless love of Christ in whom all the deity dwells? Do you see it? The Holy Spirit compels us to press into Jesus as the Holy Spirit presses Jesus into us. More Jesus means more love. And Paul prays for us to comprehend that incomprehensible love of Christ. 
Now, this word for, for comprehend is an interesting word. It, it's a word that, that really means to, to grasp or to, to understand or to process information, right? He wants us to grasp this love, this incomprehensible love of Christ. So we literally need to grasp the gospel. We need to grasp Jesus' love for us as seen in the gospel to comprehend that incomprehensible love of of Christ. And here's what that means for us if, if you're, say, uh, here this morning and you're a non-Christian. If you're a non-Christian, you haven't put your faith in Jesus. It means, friend, that you need the Holy Spirit. You need His help to understand and to believe and to know the Gospel. That means that you might be thinking this morning that I don't think of myself as a sinner. And I'm kind of okay with that. And you need to know that the problem is not that you're not a sinner, but that you need the Holy Spirit's help to know that you're a sinner against a holy and righteous God. You need His help for that. It is the goodness of God that displays our neediness before Him. And you might say, well, why would you say that I'm a sinner? I mean, I'm kind of in your house that's not very hospitable. Well, friend, what we do here is we talk about God's Word. And what God's Word says clearly, the Bible of God's Word says that you, along with all of us, have sinned against the highest authority. And we, we are destined and we deserve God's judgment. So if you have not put your faith in Jesus, there's nothing more important for you today than to put your faith in this Christ. So let me just encourage you right now. What you need most is to stop and just to pray that God would awaken you to the reality of your sin, but also to the reality of God's grace. See, if you understand your sinfulness, then you're ready to hear about God's grace. The fact that Jesus came and lived the life that you cannot, died on a cross for you, and was raised from the dead to tell you that you have incredible hope for more in this life than you can imagine. You have hope in the gospel for you. Now, if you haven't believed in that gospel, let me encourage you to believe in that gospel. Uh, There's some things that you can do. Uh, One is, we've got a number of people here who would be happy to go through the gospel of Mark with you so that you can freshly expose yourself to who Jesus is. The second thing is, you can actually uh, take time and, and come over the next uh, coming Sundays after this series where we, we're going to be spending a lot of time in the Gospel of Mark, where you can hear about the goodness of salvation in Christ. In other words, you can hear about who Jesus is on Jesus' terms through the Gospel of Mark. But friend, don't leave here today without responding to Jesus. But there's a second thing that we see here for Christians. See, Paul wants us to apprehend The love of Christ as well. He wants us to apprehend the love of Christ, which has apprehended us. So we'll talk about the knowledge of God at the end of this series. But for now, I just need to ask you, do you get bored as a Christian with God? With His people? With His Word? With the preaching of God's Word? Sometimes I feel like we, we contemplate God... Uh, in a way that's, that's not healthy or helpful. Uh, in fact, it reminds me sometimes the way that we respond to God of uh, Chevy Chase in a scene from uh, one of his vacation movies. You'll remember when he goes and he visits the Grand Canyon, right? One of the wonders of the world. Like, Grand Canyon is pretty amazing. Uh, if you go and see it, uh, it's a big hole, but a lot more than that, right? And, and, and as you look at it, you, you really don't just go up and sort of ease up on the Grand Canyon and think, that's kind of cool. Like normally, Chevy Chase, he eases up on the, the Grand Canyon and his wife's like, hey, stop, you need to look at this. And he goes, okay. And he goes, okay, let's go. Right? I mean, like, you just saw something amazing. 
Like, so says all of humanity. And you just turned away like it was nothing. And sometimes, you know, I feel like we, includes me, we, we ease up on the transcendent God. We, we see Him, behold Him in the Scriptures. And then we're just kind of like, yeah, just kind of not feeling it today. And so I guess it must be God's fault for not being awesome enough. Or it must be other Christians' fault for not being, you know, what I need. Or it must be like this sermon's fault, or that song's fault, or this musician's fault. It's got to be somebody's fault. It can't be me that has a problem with God, right? And yet what the Bible says is that when we are not driven towards God, it, it, it is we are not responding to the, the vastness of the glory of God, it really actually is most likely a problem with our own hearts. See, we read a little Bible, we pray a little prayer, or sometimes we even work hard at relationships and we just want to give up. But the real problem might not be the difficulty of the work, but our comprehension, catch me, of God's love. The, the key issue, the fundamental issue spiritually with us might be that we have not comprehended afresh the love of Christ for us as made clearly on display in the Bible. So grasping the incomprehensible, let me just, let me warn you, it's not easy. It takes faithfulness and it takes work. You, you have to grasp and you have to build a grip through spiritually being faithful to God's word and pursuing him even when it's hard. But could it be this morning that you're bored with God because your love has grown cold? And that's because you're not working at grasping the gospel with the fresh hope that his mercies really are new every morning. If you distance yourself from the boundless love of Christ. Well, hear me. God's Spirit moves in us, but it is a work to study God's Word. It's a work. It's a work to behold the glory of God. It's a work to love other sinners. It's a work to pray. It's a hard work. But the cosmic king, hear me, here's the promise in this verse. The cosmic king promises to meet you in that work. We need the Spirit to help us in this because we are little leaky buckets trying hard as we might to contain the ocean of God's love it's a big task and only with the help of the Holy Spirit can we do that with our little leaky buckets but friends we have God's help and there's final thing that we see here and that's in verses 20 to 21 that God can do more than you can imagine God can do more than you can imagine look in verses 20 to 21 these are Great verses to look at and to put your confidence in. As you're, as you're trying to, to think about, how do I get excited about prayer? How should I approach prayer? These are some encouraging verses. Here's what Paul says as he closes out this half of the book. He says, Now to Him, giving praise to God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, Throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So Paul closes out his prayer and the first half of Ephesians with this glorious doxology that declares it doesn't matter how great your IQ is or how great your imagination is, how creative you are, what you can dream up in your imagination, but God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Did you catch that? It's not just that like, I'm going to ask this of God and I should expect that He can do more. 
Now, Paul says, you need to expect that God can do far more abundantly than anything that you ask or imagine. We need to recalibrate our ask to who God is, the cosmic king. Doesn't matter what you anticipate that God is able to do, he can do more, and not just a little more. He can do far more. And so in verse 21, we are part of displaying God's eternal glory in the church and in our relationship to Christ Jesus. But here's what I think about these verses. We need to be really careful when we read Paul here. Some might say, well, I like this. Uh, God can give me far more than anything uh, I really need. And so I would really like a Mercedes. And so God needs to give me a really nice car. And maybe if I ask for a Mercedes, I'll have a Lamborghini that shows up. You know, why not? God's able, right? He's got the resources. But notice that before he drops down into what God is able to give, he begins with what God has already given. A love that has been deeply rooted in us and that we have been founded on. In other words, we are saturated with the love of Christ. And that love is a sacrificial love that seeks the glory of Christ and the good of Christ above even our own good. Because we know that that's what we made in Christ love more, is the glory of God and enjoying that glory. And so we need to be careful. If we are in love with what we drive, we might not be driven by the love of Christ that roots and grounds. In other words, if our biggest dreams are for a new house or a new car, not that those are bad things. I hope you all have all new cars and new houses, for, for sure. But if those are our biggest prayer requests of God, if those are our biggest dreams for our future, we've lost that spirit-driven desire. See, I, I want to make sure that we understand that this isn't a prosperity gospel message. You might be leaving out of here thinking like, great, now I've got like permission and warrant by the pastor. I need to go ask for a really nice car and lots of money, Right? Because he can do more than I can dream or imagine. Well, you know that the prosperity gospel, it's it's that gospel that's all about naming it and claiming it, blabbing it and grabbing it, uh, perceiving it and receiving it or believing it and receiving it. And here's where the prosperity gospel is so bankrupt. All right. It begins with what we desire, usually material possessions, and then turns God into a bellhop for what we want. And here's the, the nightmare that I've seen over and over again in that system. When God fails, which is what they would say, it's because your faith is broken. Do you see that system? Like, I've named it and claimed it. God didn't do it. Well, the problem is with you because your faith isn't sufficient. And if it's not sufficient for a new car or something like that, then how is it sufficient for something like salvation of my soul from sin? Right? See, that's not what Paul means here. No, Paul, when he says God is able to do far more than we can ask and imagine, in the context, he's just talking about, like, for one, I want you to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. Like, that's amazing. If you get your mind wrapped about uh, around that, that's enough to keep you busy for the rest of eternity. But, if God can do that, and He can, the sky is the limit. So sometimes I'm just worried that we as conservative Christians get locked into small visions of what God can do And pray small, attainable prayers in the name of discernment and wisdom. When God's Word says that He can do far more than anything that we ask or imagine. So what I want to encourage you to do this morning, and really to do throughout the rest of this series, and really for the rest of your life, 
is let's not settle for praying worldly prayers, but let's not also be fearful to expect great things of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I want more than perishable goods destined to be eaten by moths and rust. I want some of that imperishable stuff, right? Those treasures that do not fade. Like, that's what my heart longs for. And I want to store up treasures in heaven. And and to see heavenly fruit right now is a foretaste of more fruit that is to come. So do we love what God loves or do we love earthly comforts? Are we willing to settle for less or do we really want the more that God has for us? Are we dreaming about and praying about things that only God can do? Do we really want more of what only God can provide? Or are we settlers? See, the prosperity, go- the prosperity gospel's problem isn't that it seeks too much, but too little. Now, I want, I don't know about you, but I want to serve in the mighty cosmic war of my Father in heaven and see sinners saved. I want, I want to want it more than I do with a love that only the Holy Spirit can provide. I don't know about you, but I dream of all kinds of things that I ask God for, and I want to ask Him for more of. You know, I want to see more baptisms like Adriana and Linda who are getting baptized today. Don't you want to see more of that? Yeah, amen, right? I want to see more marriages that are able to reflect the joyful, sacrificial love of Christ. And all of our marriages want more of that. No? Yes. We want more disciples that comprehend the love of God, right? We want to see Trinity Bible Church take part in planting churches all over the world. We're doing that. We're taking part in that. I don't want to outrun my coverage, but I'm, I'm more scared of underestimating my God. I want to plant more churches in the Philippines, Scotland. I want to see us do works in the Morocco and, and other places. I want to send out more pastors and missionaries. And let's not call caution wisdom. Let's ask God for more than what we could imagine or ask. I know it can feel like we don't have the resources when we pray for these things, but let's dream more in the confidence that God really is able to do what He says He's able to do. Far more than what we can ask or imagine. And let's ask the Spirit to excite and revive us in ways that only He can and only God would provide the resources so that we might take His love to the nations and do far more than we can imagine trusting that God can only can not only exceed our wildest fears, but our wildest dreams in serving Him. Right? Like, we don't want to just say, I hope God does better than what our fears are. We want Him to do better than our best dreams of what He can do. And the year of more is what I would love for this year to be for our church. Like, really be enthralled by a vision of a God who can do more than what we ask and imagine. Are you there with me? Like, can we ask that God would do this? That was a question. Amen, right? Like, I'm not here to waste my years for God. We're here for the glory of God. And He has gathered great people to do great things for His name. And our imaginations, friends, they are not the ceiling, they're the basement. Let's pray.